Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the cyber jockey, CJ Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. On the phone with us is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Hello, Cliff. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Hey, Joe, how are you? Great. How are you? Great. And uh, we've got a, a great lineup for today's show. Let me quickly review how you can contact us, you can just send me an email at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, or you can send in, uh, an email to info, I-N-F-O, at iaqtraining.com. Today's show segments include the microband trivia quiz, David Fetbite of Aerotech P&K, the IEC, IE Connections, What's News segment with IEC publisher Glenn Fellman and Joel Berkowitz of Fireproofing Inc., also president of IKEKA, IKEKA, I get that right. These acronyms will get you. I'll straighten I'll that one out soon. later. <laughs> First, we'd like to also thank our sponsors for today, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. And, of course, our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. To contact the show, simply go into the www.talkshoe.com website, follow the directions to get your PIN number, and our show ID is 1547. Last but not least, please visit IAQ Training Institute's website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over here in a moment to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, for the microband trivia question. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Uh, last week, last week's two-part trivia question dealt with phobias, and it was answered by Darren Hudima of Washington State. Good work, Darren. That's two in a row that you got. This week's trivia question is a current events trivia question. The subject matter is blonde bombshells. Uh, we lost uh, Anna Nicole Smith uh, yesterday. And this question deals with someone else who was equally famous in her time. In 1967, insects contributed to the death of a Playboy bunny and movie star. Who was she, and what was this connection to insects? I'll repeat it. In 1967, insects contributed to the death of a Playboy bunny and movie star. Who was she, and what was the connection to insects? Back to you, Joe. That's an interesting one, Cliff. Thank you. Our first guest today is Mr. David Fetfight. 
David has 11 years of experience in the environmental laboratory industry that includes management and leadership experience with full profit and loss responsibility. That's always a tough one. He is also re he's responsible for the Aerotech Laboratories, Inc. in Phoenix, Arizona, and the P&K Microbiology Services, Inc. in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So David's currently the president of Aerotech P&K. He's also the president of the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, and he's a member of numerous other associations and has served on numerous task, force, task forces as well. Welcome, David. Oh, I think we have some... Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. All right. CJ, you have some intro music for our first guest? Of course, as usual. All right. Let's see what we came up with. Thank you, there CJ. You Dave, that was just for you. Hey, um, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I don't think I've ever been introduced uh, with the Monster Mash before. <laughs> I'll that one down. Uh, all right, uh, David, let's uh, get right into things. I, I had uh, talked to you earlier in the week, and I'm not sure how far along we got with respect to some acquisition activities going on out there. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, sure, absolutely. Now the, the the deal is closed, and we can talk about it. Um, what uh, transpired around the right at the effect of the first of the year is that uh, HIG Capital, which is a U.S.-based um, private equity group out of Miami, um, acquired the STL Severn Trent Laboratories group um, of companies from Severn Trent in the U.K. and and that. Those names probably don't mean a whole lot of, to very many people, but STL is the parent, ultimate parent company of Aerotech P&K, and HIG is the ultimate parent company of MLAB. <clears throat> so as a result, we've got uh, the merger of a number of, of large environmental laboratory companies um, that is going to be taking place throughout this year. Uh, the largest piece is going to be the STL and Test America uh, merger. They're the, they're the we're already number one and number two largest environmental laboratories uh, in the country. That's a lot of the environmental chemistry type testing, and the and each of them each held Aerotech PK and M Lab. So then Aerotech PK and M Lab are going to be doing a merger, um, kind of as a side side business from the rest of all that activity, and uh, and we're really looking forward to it. That's just kind of a roll up, I guess, huh? Yeah, definitely, definitely a roll up, and we had to go through. It was it was really had to be hush hush last year to a certain extent because the uh, the FCC was doing a a, uh, a thorough examination to make sure there weren't any any issues. We had to get approval from the federal government having a having a publicly traded company go private, um, but they got a, got approvals and it went through January one. Congratulations! Yeah, that's that's excellent. Now that kind of leads us into some discussion of uh, laboratory issues, one of them being this ERMI thing that we've put up on the uh, site here. What is ERMI, E-R-M-I? Who is ERMI, or what is ERMI, ERMI. David? <laughs> ERMI, ERMI is my little friend. No, ERMI is, uh, ERMI is an acronym for the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. Um, and as it was originally published, it was actually called the EPA relative moldiness index and 
the name ERMI is something that uh, that the EPA researchers came up with. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not crazy about the name, but it is what it is. Um, so that's 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 how it was developed. They recently changed the name uh, just over the last couple weeks. Uh, the EPA researchers came back to us and said, "Hey, you know, we've got EPA is telling us that we can't have the name EPA." in a brand name that's going to be commercially sold. And I think so that was probably the reason why they had to change it from the EPA Relative Moldiness Index to the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. And what does this index uh, categorize? Well, the index is was developed um, by some research that Steve Vesper has been working on for the last several years. Uh, and basically is a is an evolution out of research that he started 10 years ago um, relative to using uh, molecular techniques, that's the looking for DNA in mold basically, and using that as a method uh, to try to track down indoor environmental problems that are, that are mold related. So what he did is once he, did, he developed a, a panel of, of 36 different species of mold that were of interest, that he, that he thought were either routinely found in indoor environments, specifically residential, and uh, including a list of species that were typically indicative of, of water damage, so stuff that's going to be growing on the walls once you have a, a, a moisture problem. And he took these, this panel of 36, and they went out and did a study that was, uh, I believe it was HUD, and it was called the HUD Healthy Homes Study um, that started, well, I don't even know the beginning date of it, but it was it was just after 2000, I believe, was when it began and wrapped up in, in 04, 05. And they went out and took dust samples from 1,100 homes. And out of these 1,100 homes, they, I mean, they analyzed allergens, they did some chemical tests, and then one of the tests they did was this panel of, for 36 different fungi using these molecular PCR techniques. And then once, the, once all the data was in, <clears throat> he started doing a, a number of statistical analyses to try to figure out if he could find any kind of pattern or any kind of method for creating an index. And so the result was this ERMI index, which is basically a curve uh, that shows, you know, that kind of gives an index rating and a relative rating, and that's where the, the name relative of, of molds in homes from lowest to highest. I guess a lot of the uh, concerns that some people have is that, that this is done at the species level, and you've chosen, you know, they've chosen 36 species out of who knows how many, you know, a million or more. Why, uh, can you explain a little bit more for our listeners why that would be representative of what is a moldy home versus what is not a moldy home? Yeah, I don't have, I, I know Steve, in, in some of his papers that have been published, um, he goes into a little bit more of the background uh, on that approach, but I think um, for some, and it was based on some of the other research that have been done that, that shows that even though there are millions of mold species that exist um, in the world, that typically in an indoor home environment, it really comes down to, to maybe a couple hundred um, and most obviously there's going to be rare exceptions, but it's it's always going to be a bell curve. And in the in the middle of the bell curve, where you know most of most of the homes are going to sit, it's really going to be reduced probably down to you know less than a hundred species that are typically found. So I think, and especially it, it gets even more narrower when you actually start talking about 
you know, the molds that are going to grow on, on building materials, you know, assuming that you're talking about, you know, drywall and wood and carpet and, you know, indoor finishes and those types of things that support the grow- growth of mold, you know, you're not going to find all million species of mold that will actually grow on those substrates. Um, but it but certainly is a valid point. I think, and I think the re- the way that he, that Steve uh, Vesper with the EPA kind of counteracts that is that he was able to find consistency in using this and using this index uh, to create the, you know, to cre- basically create the index um, and have the have the high homes consistently. You know, if you get a home that that consistently gets the high, gives you a high index value, that the correlation with having a mold problem in the home uh, was statistically high. I have a two-part question for you. I understand that this is a dust sample, so I'd like you to tell me how the sample was taken. And the second part of the question is: normally, I know they look at carpet as being a sink for. Uh, you know, just a catcher's mitt to, to catch anything that could fall out of the the air. What happens if the house doesn't have carpet? If it has hardwood floors, right? And I was it's very those are very good questions. I think it's and it's a lot of how over, around what this technology is based. Well, first, so to address the first part of your question, uh, we recommend um, we recommend any number of different type of of dust collection devices. Um, I, we specifically recommend the dust check device that actually fits on the end of a vacuum cleaner hose. Uh, it's probably the most efficient at collecting dust um, out of a carpet. Uh, but any number of devices that, that are used to collect dust can be used. You know, pumps with with uh, you know PCE filters, whatever you want to use, as long as the the filters are are you know less than one micron and and um, you know any way you can collect house dust is going to be appropriate. Uh, certainly, there are there are times with when this test is not going to be uh, not going to be appropriate uh, to address your second question. Um, you know, a perfect example is you know if the homeowners have all the have all the carpets changed. You know, for example, as part of a, they're about to sell their house and they change all the carpets out. Well, if you go in and, and collect the dust sample um, uh, to do an ERMI test, hoping to find you know some sort of of dust reservoir to be a to be a marker for for potential mold contamination, it's just not going to be there. I mean, you're, number one, you're just not going to get dust. You're just going to get fibers. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so there are times when uh, when it's not going to work. Uh, let's go back a little on the PCR. Can you explain a little bit more for our listeners on how PCR works and who developed sure. it, and you know, uh, things along those lines? Well, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, um, and, and it's basically just a a chemical chain reaction, and it's a method to, to identify, uh, I mean, well, either DNA or RNA. And in this case, for the most part, it's DNA that we're looking to identify. And that's that technology has been around for quite a while. And then, even more recently, over the past, within the last 10 years, um, uh, that technology has been refined. Uh, and there's a kind of a new method that's called uh, quantitative PCR, and then. EPA took it even further and and has a naming scheme where they call they call it MSQPCR, which is mold specific quantitative polymerase chain reaction. If that's not a mouthful, I don't know what is. Um, but it basically, it enables you to to take a take a sample of that that might have some mold spores in it, extract the DNA, and so you're obviously talking about very small, <laughs> invisible amounts of of nucleic acids, and then you. You do a chemical reaction, which basically enables you to to count or assay the number of copies 
of a specific target stretch of DNA that was in that sample. So at the end of the at the end of the day, so you could take, for example, you can take a mold or a dust sample, extract the DNA out of it, run these tests, and you're able to, to specifically say, okay, there were, you know, 250 copies of a piece of DNA that was specific from Stachybacter tartarum in the sample when we started. Um, I guess I don't know if that's a, that's a very basic explanation, but now that. That certainly helps. Now, is this also useful for other types of samples, not just dust samples? Oh, sure. I mean, you can do, you know, the, the technology's been around for a long time, and there's um, lots of applications, specifically for mold. I mean, you can do it from dust. You can do it from surface samples, air samples, um, you know, pretty much any kind of sample. that Any sample that's going to have mold in it, you can certainly extract. You can extract the DNA. Um, and I will say, there's there's other you know there's other industries and applications that use it quite widely a little bit even more so than mold um, for example in the food industry it's used widely to to uh, test for E. coli like all the E. coli 157H7 anytime there's an outbreak and, and a lot of the food processors and and uh, packagers routinely use you know the quantitative PCR as a method to try to identify uh, E. coli in samples um, so it's definitely Definitely a powerful tool. Dave, I did some background information. I went on to Wikipedia last night and, and in order to get uh, prepared for the interview, and I was looking up qPCR, and it talked about a number of different ways to do this. And rather than going through them all, it said that this, I, I, you know, according to Wikipedia, I'm certainly not a qualified to evaluate this stuff, but it said that the most accurate way to do this was using something called a fluorescent reporter probe method. Is that what this system uses, or are you guys already doing yes. this? Okay. No, that's that's exactly what it uses, right? Okay, so according to Wikipedia, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, uh, to, 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 to summarize, to make it simplify what that, how that technology works, is when you you have a, a target stretch of DNA that you want to amplify, and so you have specific, they, they call them primers on either end that match up with, uh, you know, with each nucleic acid sequence on each end of the target target sequence of DNA, and you put it through a number of thermal cycles, and so it, you're, building, you're building replicate copies of the DNA on top of it and, and multiplying them, and, you, and it's exponential because you go from one copy to two to four to eight to 16, et cetera. And then in order to measure how much DNA you have, you, take a, a, you have a, a sequence of DNA that actually has a fluorescent probe, and that's what they're talking about, the fluorescent reporter. Uh, that actually gets embedded into each copy of the DNA. And so as you're making multiple copies of DNA, your target DNA sequence is going to contain exp exponentially more and more of this fluorescent reporter. And so then you can just, you can, you know, hit it with some, hit it with a specific, specific beam of UV light and, and uh, record the fluorescence. And then you, then that's how you actually measure the quantity of DNA that you've, uh, that you've replicated. Well, at some point, either Dave or either Joe or I were going to, you know, talk to you about cost, and you know, it, you know, according to this document, which is totally independent, it says it's the most accurate, it's the most reliable, and it's also the most expensive. So, uh, but I, I mean, this is what you want. You want the right information, so you have to pay for it. So, uh, you know, I guess speaking speaking of that, uh, how much does it cost to have uh, a sample done? Can you just do one sample? Sure. I mean, the the list price right now for an ERMI sample is is two hundred ninety five dollars, and again, that is 
basically 36 individual tests <laughs> for 36 different species of fungi that you're that you're testing for. Uh, so it obviously is, you know, it is it is an expensive test, but again, it's based on the based on the technology. And there's some things that we're going to be doing to work on bringing the cost down. Some of our listeners are more familiar with sample results in like colony forming units, CFUs per cubic meter or spores per cubic meter. How would they, what type of results would they get from this type of analysis, Dave? Well, there's actually two different, there's two different units that, that would be, you'd be dealing with if the ERMI. One is you actually get the spore equivalent count is what we, what we use so if we, you know, depending on the number of, of copies of DNA that we're able to measure, uh, you know, we, we base it on the assumption that one copy of the target DNA is going to be present in one spore. So you end up with, you know, however many spore equivalents of each of the individual 36 species of, of moles. And now what the, what the ERMI does to really simplify all this and is, is the work that Steve did with all the statistics on the EPA side was that he divided this, this group of 36 molds into two different groups. There's 26 that are uh, more typical of water damage situations, and there's 10 that are just typical, you know, outdoor, indoor, the types of, the types of molds you're going to find, you know, every day. Obviously, there's a lot more than 10 that are common, but the 10 on his list are, are those 10 that are common. So basically what he does is set, sets up those two different lists and does the 36 individual PCR analyses and you come up with a list of uh, account for spore equivalents for all the species of the 36 that were in there. And then he does a mathematical calculation where he converts all the spore equivalent numbers into a log, a uh, base 10 log. And so you end up with a whole number for each of the group one and group two. And then he basically just subtracts one from the, and you end up with a, with a single whole number that ranges anywhere from, you know, negative 10 to 20, which I think is what the scale is. Um, so that, that whole calculation is just a logarithmic algorithm, um, another mouthful. But, you know, basically at the end, the, the, the beauty of this test from a, from a simplicity standpoint is that it's got incredibly powerful science behind it, and you end up at the end of the day with just one number that, that uh, is compared to a simple chart. And, you know, I'm looking at, I guess uh, a document that I pulled off of EPA Science Forum, and it actually shows what one of these reports looks like. It talks about the the background and the methods and the results and the significance and, and so on and so forth. And what's very meaningful to me, there are two charts, one that lists all the 36 molds and the other one that lists the odds ratios for predicting illness and, and so on and so forth. And then I think what is most dramatic is they have a chart which is very, very visible, which visual, which shows uh, an area prior to remediation and then this area after remediation. And it's, uh, you know, essentially, a, I guess, a, a chart that, you know, shows that before remediation they have, I guess, what would be considered an 11. And then after remediation, it's, le it's less than a 1. So they're, it's showing a tenfold reduction in you know, what they're saying is medical intervention. That's very, very powerful because I think a lot of times you look at these reports and all you see are numbers. And this chart, I think, is pretty dramatic. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember when Steve actually presented that at IAQA, at the IAQA convention, not this last year, but the year previous, 
Um, and it was before it had actually been published. And it was just, it was, it was astounding that, that, yeah, medical intervention for, for uh, asthma and uh, was reduced tenfold. And it's a 10 times reduction after, after mold remediation in those homes. Um, absolutely, absolutely significant. So I think there's two, you know, there's kind of two different directions that EPA has gone with the research. One is using the ERMI as a method to to predict whether or not a, a resident has a mold problem, and then the other angle that they've been taking uh, is just that is, is using the ERMI as a as a predictor for uh, health risk. And certainly from the, you know, those are two very, you know, obviously interrelated and very important. Um, Important areas. I, I will. I will say that at this point, as far as what um, the commercial labs are able to offer, and as far as what we're offering, you know, we're not. We're not trying to use this test right now as a as an indicator for or a predictor for health risk. Um, I think there's some more research that needs to be done, and and maybe another method or venue that can you know that can back that up before we start making those claims. But I think at this point, the most useful method or the most useful application of this technology. Is for really a, a simplistic screen of a residential structure, whether or not there's a hidden mold source. I mean, you can basically go in and, and a, a property transaction is a perfect example where you go in, take a single dust sample, you know, do a you can do a visual inspection, obviously, and look for if there's any major major issues. But as we all know, certainly for a property transaction, um, most homeowners are pretty savvy about hiding up, covering up stains and and pass water damage, but you can just do one dust test, the dust sample, and do the ERMI and, and uh, have a pretty good feel for whether or not there's any hidden hidden sources of mold in the home. Now, would you recommend doing this one sample in one location or doing several locations and putting them together as one sample? Yeah, we recommend a global a global dust sample. So you could take, you know, do composites of different, you know, take the same sampling cassette and do a composite of several different areas all into one, all into one sample. Because again, you know, the point is to is is trying to get a, a feel for the overall, you know, what you're really testing for is the overall ratio of common molds to water indicator molds. Um, so really, that's uh, that's what you're trying to drive at. No, you know, it's a, go ahead. I guess it's Go ahead. As a taxpayer, uh, I'm wondering how do you know, I guess my tax dollars pay for this in 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 one way or another? How does the government um, get back their investment in time and development? Do they charge you a licensing fee? Do they sell you software? Yeah, they're okay. They they do collect a royalty. So when the EPA developed um, used the PCR technology and applied it to Developing the the probes and primers that they use for these for these panel of fungi, which is the work that the EPA did way back in the late 90s, um, and actually Aerotech was the first lab to license the technology. Uh, boy, it might have been as far back as 98 or 99, and ever since then, absolutely every every uh, test that's done uh, on in the commercial side of the business, and we collect money for, we have to pay a percentage of that back to the EPA. Okay, that's good. And the how many other laboratories out there are using this technology now, Dave? Um, you know, there's a there's a place on the EPA website, uh, and I was there a couple weeks ago, and it looked like there were as many as six or seven labs that have actually licensed the technology, uh, and I'm not sure how many of them are actually, um, you know, actively promoting or, or I mean, some of those are more research 
driven laboratories, but they've all you know they've all licensed it, so they all have the ability to offer it commercially. I'm not quite sure how many labs are actually offering it commercially. Has has it been used in any legal cases or any of the big mold attorneys fond of this, you know, fond of this method or the opposite of that? Yeah, you know, I know, you know, I know, you know, PCR as a as a method uh, for for testing for mold has been used extensively in a lot of legal cases over the last six, seven, eight years. Um, but the ERMI itself, as far as using using that. 36 panel and and you know comparing it to the index um, since it's really such a new commercial application I have not yet heard of any cases where it's been used um, but again you know I think I don't know that it'll become the heart of any any major legal battles because I think if people are using it properly um, within the scope that it's intended which is you know as a, as a screen um, you know I think the the reports that Aerotech B and K uses is a it gives you a, a red, yellow, green scale, and so, you know, if your if your ERMI value that you get from your sample is is over five, for example, you're in the red zone, which means you know there's likely a hidden source of mold somewhere. You got to find it and figure out how you're gonna you know, what you're gonna do with it. But you certainly can't take an ERMI ERMI report and and hand it to a remediator and say, okay, clean it up. I mean, it's not. It, it, there's several steps that you need to do to get from here to there. So I don't. I think just as a screening tool. You know, it's probably other. You're not really making any serious implications. So you don't. Is it something? Is it something a homeowner or consumer can do themselves? Can they do their own testing? Uh, you know, ultimately, it, you know, potentially it could be. I mean, I think they'd have to be relatively savvy in order to figure out how to get the sampling supply. You know, follow the instructions, take samples around, send it to the lab. I know. I'm not quite sure how. Um, how the other laboratories in the business are, but to be quite honest with you, you know, Aerotech PK is not really, you know, our business model is not set up to cater to homeowners. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain there's a, a a certain amount of cost that's associated with setting people up and having to collect payment and all that stuff. So I don't know that it's um, it's really encouraged. But I, you know, I suppose if the if the homeowner is savvy enough, potentially they could. Um, but again, I think. I think especially if you're in a situation, in a property transaction situation, you know, if, if you're the buyer, you might want to do it on your own. But I certainly would rather have, um, you know, if it's, some, if it's going to be something, uh, a scientific analysis, I, I would certainly recommend having a third party conduct the test. David, I, you're also the president of IESO, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. And the last time we had you on the show, it was in that role, and you announced that they had received their ANSI accreditation. They're currently, there's um, one standard that I'm aware of for property transaction screens. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are with respect to whether or not this type of technology might replace the spore trap technology and the swabs and tape lifts that are currently being used to screen on residential home inspections. I think um, that's a very, it's a very good question, and I think I think ultimately it, it's possible. I mean, I think that the technology or the you know, the the approach and the application of the technology um, is is really equivalent to a lot of what that a lot of what the standard IESO standards uh, say right now. Because basically, the scope of the the scope of the IESO assessment right now is to go in, you know, do steps A through. The, and collect a number of samples 
and do you know do some calculations and and do some comparisons and the end result is basically at the end of the day a red yellow or green you know we either think there's a potential problem there's uh, or there's not and I think um, I, I think this is probably a much more well defined I don't know that the you know uh, those standards were, were compiled by, you know, 30 or 40 people on an advisory board sitting down and hammering out and saying, yeah, we think this is a good idea. Whereas this, uh, the ERMI here is based on, you know, the EPA doing research of 1,100 homes and coming up with, you know, published data. So I think, I think they're both, um, they're both valid. Ultimately, this, this potentially could replace it. Again, you know, it might come back to an issue of cost. Um, if, if the you know, marketplace seems that it was equivalent on a cost basis, I'm not quite sure. And, and getting used to using the method and, and, uh, and really determining the value in the marketplace. Do you see the cost coming down in the next couple of years? Yeah, I do. I think, um, I think the, the, only, the only direction they can go is down. I know they're not going to get any more expensive um, unless EPA re- renegotiates their license agreement and wants to wants to target us <laughs> a higher percentage on royalty fees, um, and, and there's a couple things that are going to drive the price down. I mean, naturally, and picked up um, just from a you know just from a, a supply and demand standpoint, uh, we'd be able to negotiate lower prices for the reagents, and, and that's really what drives this test are the, the molecular diagnostic reagents that we have to buy, you know, all those primers and probes and all the buffers. Um, it's a highly, highly sensitive biochemical test that we're doing here, and it's, it's, those things are not cheap. Um, and the instruments themselves, you know, are, you know, $100,000 instruments. Um, so I think just, you know, scale could drive the price down. There's another, it was just a couple weeks ago, I learned about a paper that uh, the EPA is looking to publish. It has not been published yet, um, so I can't talk too much about it, but it basically reduces the, the number of species that uh, are used in the statistical analysis. So I think it takes it down from 36 down to, I want to say like 13, uh, and they were able, out of the same set of data, they were able to duplicate the same index um, with a, with fewer number of species, so I I haven't had a chance to review the, the entire paper at, at, at a detailed level. I'm not sure if it's going to be published, but I think that uh, you know number one, if if we are able to reduce it to 13 species, the price automatically would go down. You know, I mean, you're doing a third of the doing a third of the work. I think it's probably safe to say the price would go down to a third of what it is now. Um, but again, then that raises the point, you know, which was Cliff's question earlier, which is, you know, already he was already questioning the, the reliability of using just 36 individual species. You know, if we go down to 13, is there a, is there a higher chance for false positives or false negatives? And I think it's a valid point. You know, I guess the other thing with this new technology, I you had mentioned um, the post remediation verification, and and even on the screening part of things, let's let's go back to the screening. Somebody does a screen, and we find that uh, we're red for whatever reason. The dust in the home is red. It doesn't take out the fact that somebody has to determine whether or not it's red because there was a moisture problem that's been fixed or there still is a moisture problem that needs to be fixed. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, you're, you're absolutely right on. Um, so again, getting back to your point about dust being a reservoir in the home, and, and 
Yeah, that's the beauty, I think, of why this method is is appropriate for looking for hidden moisture sources or hidden hidden mold problems, because you know if it's in the air, ultimately it's going to fall out and it's going to be in a dust reservoir and it's you know it's like looking at tree rings. You can look back over you know however long that carpet's been in the home. Um, but likewise, yeah, I mean if if you didn't change the carpet and you fixed you know you fixed the mold behind the cabinets in the kitchen, um, but there's still you know those the you know, the, those mold spores that are accumulated in the dust. But I would submit that even in that situation, as a, as a homeowner, I'd still be concerned that, hey, yeah, you, you took care of the, of the primary problem where the mold is growing, but obviously if this test comes up high, you've still got a reservoir of mold spores in your home that you haven't addressed. So you still need someone to assist you with determining whether or not you've actually fixed the moisture problem and it's now just a matter of cleaning up the reservoirs or whether you still have a moisture problem and you need to go a little further than just cleaning up reservoirs. Absolutely. And that's so I think if, you know, but if a remediation job is done correctly, obviously, um, you know, you, you shouldn't, you know, if a remediation job was, was, was done correctly, say on a, on a home that's about to be sold, I think, you know, the new homeowners could come in, take the, take the sample and it would it should come back that it was clean but obviously if they you know just went through the process of changing all the carpets out you know it's obvious that it's new carpets i probably wouldn't even recommend doing this test in the first place well this has been very interesting david uh, do you have anything you wanted to add that we missed um well i think a little bit more on um you know on the question of whether or not this is this technology is going to replace you know some of the the more conventional methods i think and my and my answer was yes. I think just specifically to the scope of what the IESO screening method is right now, as far as screening a home, you know, I'm not sure that that the PCR technology is really appropriate for replacing, you know, our conventional methods on a, on a large scale. I, mean, I still think we're doing, you know, just keeping in mind that the ERMI is is designed as a as a residential screen. I think. You know, when you're doing a, a more complete investigation, I'm trying to narrow down where the where the mold's coming from. Certainly, post remediation verification, um, anything beyond just doing a preliminary screen. I think you know you're going to have to use all those conventional tools because they're just uh, they they tell you so much. You know, they tell you certainly a different set of information uh, that you can't get just looking at uh, you know one species at a time on PCR. So I think it's an important point for people to understand. So as with most new tools, it's just another tool in the toolbox, not the uh, silver bullet. Uh, that's correct. I think it could be the it could be the silver bullet for you know again for property transactions or for you know an annual proactive residential screen. I mean, I in my mind, I kind of see it like a you know if you go to a go to your doctor for for your annual physical, and obviously. Um, that changes a little bit, as uh, especially for us guys as we get older. But you know, the doctor gives you a good look over, gives you the whole visual inspection. Um, but he typically takes a, you know, draws some blood and sends it off to the lab, and and uh, you know wants to compare it to the to the zones in which you ought to be. And I I see this as the same thing. I'd recommend that you know all homeowners, you know, once a year have a visual inspection done. Make sure that you're looking at all the critical points of where you might have. Uh, moisture problems or potential moisture problems, and you know, take an ERMI. You know, draw a blood sample, send it to the lab, see where you fall in the index, see if there's something that you that you missed from your visual inspection. Cliff, anything you wanted to add? No, no point. 
David, how can our listeners contact you or Aerotech if they have want to uh, get some more information? Probably the easiest is to go to our website, aerotechpk.com, and uh, there's a lot more information. Right on the front page, there's a link to uh, the Aerotech PK ERMI website. We've got a dedicated site. Uh, that's got a lot more information, a question and answer on the ERMI, uh, sample collection instructions, the sample resort, all those report, all those types of things, uh, and all of our phone numbers and emails and contact information is on the website as well. Well, great, and and thank you for joining us again. Hopefully, we'll have you back again down the road. This is your other hat now, president of Aerotech and uh, president of IESO. What's what's next, David? Well, we've got uh, we put out a, a notice on the IESO side for all the all the interested parties that want to be involved in uh, standards writing committees. We've got a, a, a tremendous response so far as we anticipated we would. Uh, we're in the process of forming those committees and appointing chairs, and uh, and we're off to the races. I hopefully in a short period of time here we'll have some real exciting stuff to report back. Great, great. Well, thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. No problem, Jen. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Next up, I believe we have an introductory clip, and in between segments here, I'd just like to remind our listeners that IAQ Radio has um, approval for certification renewal credits from the IAQ Council. If you just email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com, we'll send you out a brief quiz on this week's show. You can take the quiz, sign off that you listen to the show, and get yourself a certification renewal credit. We're working on some credits through a few other groups as well. Our second uh, guest today is Joel Berkowitz. I believe we have some intro music for Joel. All right, Cliff, will you do the honors? Absolutely. Good morning. Uh, Joel, are you with us? Yeah, I am. Oh, Good morning. Perfect. How are you guys doing? Good. Joel Berkowitz is vice president of Fireproofing Corporation of America. They're located in New York City, New York. He's also president of the International Kitchen Exhaust Cleaning Association. Joel has been with Fireproofing Corporation for over 16 years. Before embarking on this career, he was manager and a chef in restaurants and nightclubs in both New York and Northwest Florida. Joel was a natural in commercial kitchens. Uh, he was brought up there in his uh, grandparents' restaurant and his mother's catering business, and he knows firsthand the concerns that many chefs have with maintenance contractors. Being in this business and being in food capital of the world, he could see different innovations and new technology related to kitchen exhaust industries, from automated systems for the operation of kitchen exhaust fans to precipitators and ultraviolet light exhaust systems. We're lucky or unlucky, as the case may be, to see and test in very harsh environments the latest and the best that the injury has to offer. He's a certified exhaust cleaning specialist with IKECA, He's an air system cleaning specialist with NADGA. He's certified by United Air Specialists for service and repair of smog hog precipitator units, and he's certified by Ventmaster Limited of Canada for service and repair of all units located in kitchen exhaust systems. 
Well, good afternoon, Joel. I've got a question for you. Is your primary method for cleaning kitchen exhaust systems a dry method or a wet method? Uh, Cliff, actually, um, our company's method is a dry method. I know we talked about this a little bit before the show, and uh, many of the other companies around the United States and around the world uh, use wet method to clean. Uh, however, in New York, we have a few more concerns about wastewater as well as ductwork that uh, is old and is bolted together, uh, may not pass uh, the water test, and to avoid greasy brown ceiling tiles, most of the cleaning that we do on established systems is dry method. Elbow grease, hand okay. scraping, uh, entering ducts, scraping, um, a lot of degreaser. And then... Go ahead, Cliff. Oh, go ahead. Um, do you use little people in order to do this? <laughs> <laughs> All different sizes. Our, 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 our employees range from, from being very small to very large, and everybody has their place on the line. I'm curious, could you tell us a little bit about the wet methods, Joel? Even though you don't use them, you're the president of um, the Kitchen Exhaust Cleaning Ica. Association, Ica. Right. Um, yeah, I I mangled that one pretty good in the uh, early part of the show here, Ica. Um, it's appropriate in some cases to go ahead and use wet methods. Is that accurate? Sure. Uh, most most single-story uh, restaurants, most of the cleaners that are out there now are using uh, diesel-fired pressure washers on trucks or on trailers. Uh, they access a restaurant unit, and they bring their hoses in. Uh, drape the hoods out, protect the floor, protect the kitchen equipment, protect the electric uh, behind the cooking line, and then go ahead and usually start from the top down, pressure washing the fan, uh, and then using uh, either a spin jet, which is an industry term for a pressure washer nozzle that rotates on the hose, dropping that down the vertical shaft, uh, removing the grease from uh, all four sides of a square riser or removing the grease from a round riser, working down towards the hood uh, or kitchen exhaust canopy, in the, and then uh, pressure washing uh, the canopy itself and the filters. And as they do this, they collect everything at the hood? Right. Uh, there's usually a drape uh, or a plastic funnel that comes off the hood and the water is collected in a 55-gallon drum, a big fruit garbage can, uh, and then that water can be run through the grease interceptor in the kitchen to remove the effluent from it, and basically you're pushing clean water back into the sanitary sewer system. But you have some problems in New York City because of, is it local regulations with respect to putting this water back into the system? Is that accurate, or is it something else? Mainly, it's multi-story buildings. We're, we're, we don't we don't work with a lot of single-story units. Uh, in terms of, put, we can put the water wastewater back into the system, but uh, when you're working with units that have exhaust fans anywhere from five to twelve stories up, uh, you're using a tremendous amount of water. It uh, becomes difficult to collect it all. Uh, you don't want to leave a mess in the in the people's kitchen. Uh, we've just found that over the years that we've been with the company that uh, although it may take a little bit longer to manually clean 
uh, or dry clean a uh, kitchen exhaust system that the prep time and the cleanup time um, will suffice to even it out. Essentially, it's a, I guess it's a scraping. I guess, number one, you would scrape and remove the heavy stuff, correct? And, mm-hmm. then, and then it would be uh, you know, degreasing and you know, subsequent removal until you're down to bare metal, I guess. Correct. correct. I know that you have a background <laughs> in the um, duct cleaning business as well. Do you sometimes have to cut access holes like you do in, in duct cleaning to, you know, obviously some of these units would be difficult to get to? Sure. Uh, well, as you know, or as NFPA 96 states, the code for kitchen, commercial kitchen exhaust, construction and cleaning, uh, access doors for kitchen exhaust systems should be every 12 feet or at every 90-degree turn. Uh, obviously, there are sometimes contractors that aren't able to follow those regulations or architects that don't necessarily Put them on the on the plan. So yeah, we have to go in and cut access doors. Unfortunately, uh, or and weld them in. Unfortunately, they do need to be welded, or uh, a special access door needs to be used. So consequently, it's not like uh, AC duct cleaning where you can just cut the sheet metal and stick your vacuum hose in. Uh, it has. It's usually a process that you have to be really careful, particularly when you're using a sawzall or any type of cutting torch, because the inside of the duct is contaminated with grease. Uh, even a hot sawzall blade will sometimes light that up, and you have to be really careful about how you cut, go about cutting duct, uh, kitchen exhaust duct work. Yeah, being a practitioner of both commercial air duct cleaning and kitchen exhaust cleaning, which of these processes do you think requires the most mechanical aptitude among the staff that's actually performing the service? Uh, probably... I would think with the technology that's out there today, I think uh, HVAC duct cleaning in terms of of compressed air uh, and the vacuum technology that's out there, the guys who are out in the field actually doing the jobs, uh, I think the HVAC industry, HVAC duct cleaning industry, the techs have to have a little more mechanical aptitude, be able to think on the run a little bit more. Remember that kitchen exhaust cleaning, um, duct cleaning, is something that's done on a constant basis. Restaurants here in New York, uh, some of our accounts go, you know, every month. Uh, others go every two months. And the law in New York City is to have your commercial kitchen exhaust system cleaned minimum quarterly or every three months. So as our guys get used to going back to a place and back to a place, they know where everything is. It's not like uh, an HVAC duct system where, you're looking at it for the first time, and you might not see it for another three to five years. Does would your comp- oh, I'm sorry. Would you, would your company uh, do a service if one of the if the fire suppression system malfunctioned and just sent that powder everywhere? Is that one of the things that you would provide or not? Well, uh, we have done that in the past. Uh, now with UL 300, uh, I would say 99% of the uh, fire suppression systems in use are wet chemical. So, uh, and yeah, we'll go out and clean up uh, a wet chemical um, discharge, whether it was due to a restaurateur's uh, discharge, you know, one of the employees pulling a line or uh, by mistake pulling the emergency bar, or one of our employees 
by mistake setting the system off, and we'll wet back that up and um, dispose of it with a, a fire suppression provider. But uh, very few, if any, uh, systems in our area are uh, dry chemical anymore. Do you uh, have to have licensing in New York City or in any part of the country since you are the president of uh, ICA? Is it required that you be licensed to perform this service anywhere? Uh, not in New York City. Uh, there are certain areas of the country. I know um, the former president, uh, Jeff Morris of Western Commercial Services in Las Vegas, uh, has told me that all of his guys need to be licensed and his company is licensed to perform kitchen exhaust system cleaning. Uh, I know that uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, there's a licensing requirement. I know the city of um, White Plains uh, is thinking about it. I also know Nassau County here in New York is considering uh, licensing uh, kitchen ex either the company or the technicians themselves. Uh, it's a movement that hasn't gained a lot of strength. Um, we had the city of Seattle um, fire inspector and a fire marshal at uh, one of our technical seminars, and uh, they were looking into it. It's just, uh, again, like any other government um, attempt to license, regulate, the, the red tape and paperwork just seems to be unending. I'm curious, what in areas where they do license, what drove the government to require licensing? Um, I can't, I can't really answer that because I'm, I'm not in one of those areas. Uh, I would think that, you know, a, I, in Las, in the city of Las Vegas, I have to think it was because of, of system fires. They've had some pretty bad, uh, hotel fires from kitchen exhaust systems that have gone up. So consequently, uh, and they're high rise buildings, so they can get, you know, it's very dangerous to, to have a, a grease fire in a piece of ductwork in a hotel that's housing 1,500 to 10,000 people. Uh, the same way we feel it's very, it's very important for our customers to have their systems clean because most of the systems we service are in high-rise buildings with anywhere from five stories to 50 stories of people working or living above them. Uh, that's just off. That's not fact, though. I can't, can't say that is, uh, that was the reason they did it, but uh, I have to assume that that would be a big part of it. What is a precipitator, and how do they work? Uh, a precipitator is a grease collection device that um, has been around for quite a while. Uh, they were uh, fashioned after the old smoke eaters uh, that were in bars and air purification devices that were in submarines. And basically what they do is they extract uh, grease from the exhaust stream coming out of the kitchen. Um, it's in, a, in several stages. Um, it's an electronic piece of equipment uh, with charged plates, positive and negatively charged plates. And as the grease passes through it, uh, driven by an exhaust fan, kitchen exhaust fan, uh, large particles are filtered out by a uh, baffle filter. And then um, an ionizer wire charges um, grease in the exhaust stream. Uh, and it's picked up by the collector plate behind it. Uh, and then as the exhaust passes through the rest of the unit, uh, it's 
usually passes through a charcoal filtering device or a potassium permanganate uh, filtering cartridge that extracts the odor from it. And where's this discharged? Into the building or outside? Uh, we've actually seen it both uh, recirculated right back into the kitchen. Most of them are discharged on the outside. Um, it's used particularly to avoid having to raise a um, 10 gauge black iron riser up the side of a building uh, so that the restaurateur can now exhaust basically right over his front door. So when they don't use this type of equipment, Joel, what you're saying is that there are local regulations, I would assume, or codes that require that they exhaust at a certain level above the building, or can you, can you elaborate on that for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, NFPA 96 uh, requires that uh, kitchen exhaust be brought to the roof of the building, uh, highest point, so that it can exhaust um, out into the atmosphere instead of into someone's window uh, or next to someone's window or uh, leaving streaks of grease along the side of a, of a building. Some rises are inside the building and some are put up on the outside of the building. Uh, but kitchen exhaust has to be brought to the roof. Uh, now with this innovation, um, restaurateurs don't have to do that. So uh, it saves a lot of money in terms of putting a a steel structure on the outside of a building or on the inside of a building. Um, and it also uh, allows the, the owner of the building to save that space for future rental. I just moved from a building that was next door to a restaurant, and I can imagine, you know, I, I only noticed the odor when I went outside, but I can imagine in a highly, you know, densely populated area like New York that if I was in a five-story building next to a 20-story building that there would be the possibility for my outdoor air intakes to be pulling this grease and um, exhaust into my building causing people to complain about smells etc. Do you run into that? Absolutely. Uh, in, in, like you said, in densely populated areas there's constant bickering from people in taller taller buildings about the, the five-story story grease exhaust fan, uh, the fan sitting on the roof of a five-story building and blowing smoke, hamburger, hamburger smell up to their uh, either their open window in the spring and fall or into a, a fresh air intake for an HVAC system. And those, uh, once there's a complaint, we don't, we don't necessarily hear, hear about them until uh, possibly the EPA or the city would get involved because that's where someone would usually complain. Uh, and then the restaurant would call a company such as ours and ask us what they could do about it. Uh, we would recommend um, certain filtration devices that would possibly eliminate the odor from the exhaust stream uh, solve their problem. What's the purpose of uh, ultraviolet light in an electronic precipitator? Ultraviolet light is actually not inside the precipitator. It's, um, it's a re pretty new innovation that I've um, come up with, or not that I've come up with, but I've learned about, uh, that actually burns up the grease particles before they reach a or a precipitator or the rest of the ductwork. Um, the whole idea of 
excuse me, the whole idea of a precipitator or UV is to destroy the grease before it gets to the filter media. Carbon or potassium permanganate is expensive, uh, so consequently you do your best to extract all the grease out of the of the stream before it gets to the to the filter. Gives the filter a much longer life. I'm curious. I don't know if I answered your question. Sorry. So so ultraviolet ultraviolet basically does the same thing that a, a precipitator cell would in terms of collecting the grease and destroying it before it gets to the filter media. Prior to cleaning, although it sounds like you go to the same places pretty often, but let's say you have a new customer. Prior to cleaning their kitchen exhaust, do you do any kind of an engineering assessment to make sure that it's functioning properly first, or you just go in and clean it? Well, usually uh, when we're called in uh, on a system, there's a, unless it's a brand-new system, there's a reason that they're calling. Uh, because of the requirement that the system has to be cleaned, uh, usually a, a restaurant or a commercial kitchen operation will have that that ki- have a, a vendor on hand as the system goes into use. Uh, most of the time when we're called, it's because there's an actual problem. Uh, and then the kitchen manager, chef, uh, would explain to us what it is. And I don't know if you'd call it an engineering study, but uh, with our experience and um, our knowledge of kitchen exhaust systems, my partner, Glenn, who's been in the business for Oh, I think about 30 years now, or my other partner, Tony, who's been in the business for 30 years, uh, they both have great eyes, and, and I have a good pair of eyes to look and see what's going on. Uh, they're fairly simple systems, unlike uh, HVAC, HVAC systems, in terms of dampers, turning vanes, VAV boxes. You don't have any of that. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward system. So consequently, uh, there can only be a few reasons that the system is not functioning properly. Uh, makeup air being one, you want to supply 80% uh, makeup air to an exhaust system. Uh, if that's not happening, that could be a reason the system is not functioning correctly. Uh, the exhaust fan not, not functioning properly or blockage in the system. Uh, depending on when we look at it, uh, we can sometimes turn it off, open up access doors, and determine those factors. Or if not, we have to wait till the restaurant closes, and then go in and, and do an evaluation. So you're required to have 80% makeup air. Where do you, do you determine, or I, I assume somebody has to determine somewhere along the way that you're getting that 80%, and then also, you know, where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Most most systems have dedicated makeup air units uh, now in 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 terms of installing a kitchen today, uh, it requi- is required to have a separate unit supplying that makeup air to the exhaust hood. Um, if you don't have that, then it's coming from your HVAC system, which is costing the, the building owner or restaurant owner a lot more money because now he's putting conditioned air into the hood instead of uh, non-conditioned air. Uh, you're also making the, the, the restaurant uh, fairly negative in terms of the air pressure in, in the uh, space. So you get doors slamming, you get kitchen doors flying open or flying closed. Uh, you know pretty quickly that, that there's something going on that, that's not right with the exhaust system. That, that was my... yeah, I noticed on the website for ICA that they actually use a dip method for cleaning some components of the 
of the system. Would mm-hmm. there be, I guess, a spare part that goes into the system? So you know, there's a spare that's being cleaned while one is placed in the unit, or, or how, how does that work? Well, I, when you walk into a restaurant, you see you see a, a commercial ki- uh, cooking hood. You see uh, removable filters. Right. Uh, in most in most hoods, some some you see draw filters, uh, but most kitchen exhaust systems have some type of filtration device um, right above the cooking line. Uh, those are removable and replaceable. Uh, the filters, the baffle filters that you see, um, work like a centrifuge to accelerate the exhaust as it comes off the grill and try to spin off some of the grease that's uh, in the exhaust. Uh, they're placed in the track ver- vertically so that the grease can run down the baffle and then come out in a collection cup at the, uh, at the base of the hood. Those are obviously removable. Uh, you can, uh, our process is to remove those, put in a clean one, and bring the dirty filter back to our facility to dip clean it. Uh, we get a much better result that way with a lot less time and a lot less mess on the job. Um, other people... I'm sorry. What about the, I'm sorry. What about the precipitators themselves, the plates and so on and so forth? Aren't those dipped uh, as well? Correct. Uh, same process. We remove the cell from the, from the precipitator unit, uh, and to to get out of the job quick and to give the customer the best results, we put in a uh, clean precipitator cell that's been dip cleaned, rinsed, and before we take it out to the customer, we bench test it in our shop to make sure that it's operating correctly, given the, the correct voltages, uh, and then that clean cell, bench-tested cell, is put back into the unit. Uh, we then remove the dirty cell and dip it clean. So there's an alternative, or there's an alternate. So one's being cleaned while one's in the system then. Correct. Right. Correct. And and it's it's usually not one. It's anywhere from 4 to 32, depending on the size of the cabinet. Uh, and these... Uh, Kitchen exhaust filters can any, be anywhere from 20 by 16 in terms of width and height by 2 inches wide to 25 by 25. Uh, the precipitator cells, depending on the manufacturer, uh, a smog hog cell is about 35 pounds clean, uh, whereas a Trion cell is about 130 pounds clean. So they're, they're big pieces of equipment, and they take a little bit of care and, and a little bit of TLC to keep them, keep them up and running them. Let me just go back to the makeup there for one moment, Joel. I, sure. I, this fascinates me, and, and Cliff and I pride ourselves on bringing in guests that aren't typically thought of as being involved with the indoor environment. And uh, I just wanted to comment that this has been very interesting, and it really follows along in the line of that type of guest that we've had. When you get this makeup there, are you bringing it directly from outside? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, sir. So you're installing some type of unit so that you're directly bringing outdoor air into the restaurant or into the cooking area of the restaurant, obviously, the the kitchen, and that has to be 80% of the air going up that hood. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. The other 20% coming from wherever within the room. Uh, Yes, interstitial space uh, in, in, in... in the indoor environment. Uh, if you look at, at uh, particularly manufactured kitchen exhaust hoods, they actually have duct and uh, diffusers built into the hood for makeup air. Uh, if, it's, uh, just a, a, if it's an older model, it can, 
be you can put the fuses directly above uh, basically where the chef is standing right on the outside of the hood. But most manufactured pieces of equipment now have uh, the fuses inside the hood envelope and they're directed so that you have a good a good flow of air heading right to the um, basically point it down a little bit onto the cooking line and then it just brings it right back up into the uh, kitchen filters. All right. Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to add? No. Um, I just, I guess just the last thing, they don't, do they still use borax in these systems? I remember, you know, years ago they used to uh, spray borax into the systems. No, no, no more dry, no more dry powder spraying into, into kitchen exhaust systems. Uh, actually very dangerous. Basically you're just, you're just uh, leaving fuel in, a, in the kitchen exhaust system, coating it with lime, borax, or any other type of fire or flame-proof powder is absolutely um, not allowed anymore by local fire authorities or uh, as stated by NFPA 96. Thanks. Joel, is there anything we left out or missed that you'd like to bring up? Uh, just that um, uh, the International Kitchen Exhaust uh, Cleaning Association um, is active uh, in trying to help uh, people who are doing this type of work uh, with education, certification. Uh, we have a great website at uh, ikeca.com uh, that talks about cleaning methods. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, precipitators, uh, my partner Glenn Catalano and I have put a, um, a chapter together for that. Uh, Ike is a great resource, whether it's for the authority having jurisdiction uh, in an area, fire marshal or a fire inspector, uh, insurance professional uh, looking to learn a little bit more about kitchen exhaust cleaning, or the restaurateur or the restaurant manager. Uh, that's the biggest thing is educating the end user as to quality work to make sure that the fuel is being removed from the ductwork and from the fan and from the hood envelope. That's, that's our biggest fear is that, is that a, a fire on a stove or a fire in a piece of equipment gets up into that hood and then you have um, the perfect fire triangle, basically oxygen from a fan, uh, fuel, and an ignition source, and that fire will run through the ductwork very quickly. And that's the job of every kitchen exhaust cleaning professional is to remove that fuel so that that situation does not occur. Once again, we like to pride ourselves in bringing together these groups and, and working as a team when they're doing these indoor environmental quality investigations, and that's IKECA.com, the International Kitchen Exhaust Cleaning Association, I believe it would be. And that's if, correct. Okay, Joel, if our listeners wanted to get more information on your company or contact you, where would they go? Uh, we have a website at fireproofingcorp.com uh, that gives all our phone numbers. Uh, we also have an 800 number, 800-564-4732. Uh, questions, we're, we're more than happy to answer questions. Uh, lo local, local kitchen exhaust uh, cleaning problems, we'd be more than happy to take care of. Or uh, being president of the organization, I can put you in touch with a professional who can help you throughout the world. Is there a list of uh, professionals on the ICA website? Sure. Uh, the organization also runs ICA.org, um, ICA.org. 
uh, and there's a list of members for all 50 states as well as our international members on that website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today on IAQ Radio, Joel, and I look forward to talking to you again down the road and hopefully meeting sometime. That'd be great, Joe. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. I think uh, in, in, our, in for a long time, kitchen exhaust cleaners were called hood cleaners, uh, and uh, they're a lot more than hood cleaners, and I think uh, authorities having jurisdiction, insurance companies, and restaurateurs are starting to find that out and using these people to help them uh, keep buildings safe, keep employees safe, keep residents of buildings safe, and that's a really important thing. Yeah, I guess that's it's a valuable service you provide. Yeah, it, and it's one that you don't realize how valuable it is until that worst-case scenario occurs, and then you're really uh, wishing you had contacted someone like yourself. Exactly, exactly. Well, thanks again for joining us, and uh, I'd also like to thank all of our listeners. I'd like to thank Cliff Slotnick, my co-host, for joining us here on another Friday. Cliff, from it's our pleasure, Jim. calling in from on the road. I'll see you here, hopefully, in Studio B next week. Our, I'll uh, be there. Great. Our technical director here, uh, or Dr. Wall, wasn't able to join us today. He's in Jamaica still, I believe. I, I, he may have gotten lost down there, Cliff. I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> like we were saying, maybe he fell in love. We'll find out when he gets back. And, of course, I'd like to thank Cyber Jockey, CJ, Zach Slotnick, for helping us here with the show. And, of course, last but not least, our growing group of listeners, please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 